Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Today's guest is Fred Ursum, the former co-founder of Coinbase, the Bitcoin company. Fred was a skilled esports player in high school, and when he graduated, he got the ultimate cool kid job, FX trading at Goldman Sachs. But he quickly realized that the industry was stuck in the classic innovator's dilemma trap, where they were focused on extracting rents instead of innovating. That didn't stop him from trading Bitcoin on his BlackBerry in the bathroom and ultimately leaving to Silicon Valley with no plan. With Bitcoin soaring to new highs, I'm sorry to disappoint, but we won't be talking much about cryptocurrencies. Fred is a deep and cerebral thinker, and we talk about the pursuit of objective achievement to define one's sense of self-worth, the power of executive coaching, and how it's not armchair therapy for the weak. And we talk about how human beings are pleasure-seeking and pain-avoidant. That can lead us to live our lives using a naive algorithm and leave us stuck in a local maximum of happiness. Welcome, everybody. Super pumped to introduce today's guest, Fred Ursum. How's it going, Fred? Welcome to the podcast. I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing really well. So, all right. I know that we have a lot of Wall Street listeners. And so I was wondering if you could take me back to your days at Goldman. Tell us a little bit about what you were doing there, how you ended up at Goldman out of school. Sure. So, um, I joined Goldman as a foreign exchange trader. And <laughs> the basic gist of it at the time was pretty simple. I played video games semi-professionally in high school. And you know that, that level of just pure competition was something I found that I really liked. So you know, by the time the end of undergrad rolled around and I had to get a quote-unquote real-world job, one of my thoughts was, well, wouldn't it be great if I could somehow replicate that experience, but you know, make it seem like a legitimate career and keep in mind that esports was not really a, a big thing at this time. So, yeah, and I guess the other factor that was occurring is, you know, getting a finance job was kind of the cool kid thing to do, either that or management consulting. So, I got the coolest kid job of all the cool kid jobs, which was which was going to Goldman. And, you know, I it, it was an interesting experience. I think I knew going into it that it would either be something that I really liked or something that really was not for me. And at least in that particular environment, it ended up being the latter. What part of FX were you in? So I traded G10 currencies. So the, you know, the, the kind of the largest currencies in the world, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the Swiss franc, et cetera. And what was it about it that you didn't like? It was an industry where it felt like the vast majority of the innovation was already behind us. So you know, the, those, those markets really kind of came into being, I think, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And by the time I got there, really, the, the, the markets were all about shaving a fraction of a base basis point off of trades and they were going increasingly algorithmic, which in the scheme of 
you know, good and efficiency for the world, that's a great thing. But if you're showing up there to effectively make trades more efficient by this just a little fraction of a percentage point in a market that's just getting increasingly competitive. And while there's some efficiency to be gained there, 80% of it has already been done. It wasn't particularly intellectually stimulating. The other issue with it was that, and, and I think that most investment banks are going through this right now, in my opinion, they viewed developers and engineers as second-class citizens. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the history of banking, it was always the front office guys, specifically the bankers and the traders, who really brought in all the revenue. And the technology part of it was mostly an afterthought or, or a service to, to those front office people. So I got there at a very odd time, this was in 2010, where the reality was that algorithms were kind of ruling that world increasingly, yet I was hired on a manual trading desk where there were seven manual traders. And you know, if in a vacuum, I think the best thing to do would have just been to increasingly make the, the algorithmic part of the, their market making operations stronger and stronger and stronger. But it was an odd situation in that the people who I directly worked with really had the opposite incentive because if that was successful, they their their jobs would no longer be necessary. So I think it, it was kind of kind of an unhealthy dynamic and one that resisted the natural path forward. And were you able to have the conversation about this? I mean, at one you're like 21 years old, so to challenge the incentive system in FX trading is probably not the easiest thing to do. But were you able to, sh to vent your frustration to someone? To be honest, I don't think I was self-aware enough to fully identify all these things while I was in the situation. Hmm. So, so the answer is... One, I don't think it would have been the best environment to do that. And, and two, I don't think I, at the time I had the presence of mind to articulate it in the way I am now. And so it's just 2010. Bitcoin's launched in 08, officially, I guess. Uh, yeah, the beginning of 09. 09. When were you first introduced to Bitcoin? So I got into Bitcoin with my roommate at the time in New York, who was very similar to me in that... He was a trader. He was at Morgan Stanley. And we, we were similar in that we were both you know, getting the crap kicked out of us at our day jobs. But at the same time, there was just a piece of intellectual fulfillment and curiosity that was just not there for us in those jobs. And I think it goes back to what I was saying before around the industry being relatively stagnant and past most of its, its core innovation. So uh, we, we got into Bitcoin in late 2010. Uh, started by reading the white paper and then trading it around. And I think I bought my first Bitcoin at $6.72. You know, it's, I mean, this is, this is still true of crypto to, today. Once you own a little bit, you're sort of infected by the virus, so to speak. You now own it, so you have an economic incentive to, uh, to see it succeed. And that, that, like I think many other people since us, has, has drawn us into it and caused us to learn more about it. And the more I did, and the more I experienced it myself, the more and more convinced I got that it would be a, a big deal long term. Can you tell, is your first uh, Bitcoin story, I've, I've heard the, the ones of meeting in Starbucks and exchanging tokens on USB ports and things like that. Do you have a crazy first Bitcoin trade? No. I mean, my roommate, uh, my roommate and I bought some on Mt. Gox at $6 and 70 cents in our apartment in New York. I suppose it was a little odd given that you had to route money through 
this middleman service called Dwalla, which later stopped all payments to Malcox once things got too crazy. But it was it was pretty normal. I mean, I guess the the weirder things were once I really got into it more. You know, occasionally going into the bathroom at Goldman to to trade. And I remember one time offering one of my friends who was on a sales desk near me a hundred bucks to use their BlackBerry or something like that because my mobile device wasn't working on a particular exchange's mobile site at the time. That's awesome. And so as you, I'm curious because I had not like you, but I had a Bitcoin story on Wall Street where I I was intrigued and I, I tried to talk about it with others and partially I think a lack of intellectual curiosity from some people and others the the whole kind of misplaced incentives like why should we care about this we're we're going to do this for 10 more years and it probably won't won't reach its apex anyway how did you talk about uh bitcoin amongst the trading desk the real answer is I didn't I think I tried once and it didn't really, it was, it was kind of dismissed relatively quickly. So the, the funny thing was I would walk over to what a Goldman at the time was called the IT department, which really means the software developers who are working on the trading software. And this was, keep in mind, this was early 2011, probably at this point. So even for, you know, nobody really knew what it was. So even they thought it was a little weird, but they, they at least were like kind of willing to, to listen to it and like kind of got it. But yeah, it, it was not, there was no one really to talk to at, there at the time about it. How did the idea for Coinbase transpire and, and, and tell us about your decision to ultimately leave? Yeah. So there's, there's probably a lot packed in this, but the abridged version would be I realized that I didn't think I was fulfilling my full potential while I was at Goldman. As I was saying before, I was in an environment that I, I didn't feel was was best for my long-term growth. And frankly, I sort of, when I would stop to look around me and ask myself, would I want to be any of these people in 10 years? The answer was mostly no. So I knew it wasn't the right environment for me. And then simultaneously, as I said before, I felt like we were in an industry where the majority of the interesting stuff had already happened. And it was more just kind of extracting rent rather than innovating at that point. So I decided to move out to the Valley and work on a project that, frankly, in my heart of hearts, I knew was going nowhere for three or four months with a couple of other Duke guys. That's where I went to undergrad in a house in Sunnyvale which is in Silicon Valley, kind of in the southern part of the peninsula. And, you know, I had, a, I had a good life in New York in the sense that I was in a job that paid well and only would continue to pay better and better. I was, I was dating a girl in New York at the time, and I had a great group of friends there, too. So it was, I think it was one of these sort of like pivotal moments where something in my gut told me that it was a high-risk thing to do, but it was also right for me. I think it ended up being one of these moments where losing a lot of the normal kind of comforts and safety nets in your life actually allows you to expand your mind or go and do things that had you continued to sort of stay on the default track would have been hard to ever really get to in the first place. I didn't realize. So you and I share the leaving Wall Street and and by the way, in, our paths are completely different. But I saw this. I mean, it took me 14 years in the industry to realize it and then act upon it. But the 
broken incentives, extracting rent versus innovating it became so obvious. I was like, I, I, I can't, I can't be a part of this. I, I, it will, the environment will stunt my personal growth by it's the, the, the sheer way it's constructed. How are you feeling emotionally in that time period around leaving and, and making this, this big change? It's one of those things where it feels like a, it feels surreal when it's happening, almost like a bit of an out of body experience. I knew that I was not happy at Goldman for quite a while. So that that sort of discontentment had been building for quite a while. But I, I mean, I literally told my boss I was leaving. And then a couple of days later, I left work and was on a plane out to California and arrived at the house that, that evening, and it was right into the other thing. So there was probably a lot going on inside that I wasn't fully aware of at the time, and it, it felt just like, a, like, like one of those periods in life where so much is changing that it, it was challenging to really internalize all of it. And what did your boss say when you told him what you were doing? I, he, didn't, he didn't say much, to be honest. I don't think he was surprised Frankly, I also don't think he was that sad to see me go in the sense that I think that he knew that uh, I wasn't doing my best work there. Like I probably was not, not probably, I was not a great employee there for what they would ideally have an analyst do there. So I think it was in, in a way it was kind of best for everyone. And so you land in Sunnyvale, fair to say one of the kind of big shifts in your life at that point? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I had done some things that were a little off the beaten path before in the sense that, you know, I, I feel like I spent a lot of my years in high school effectively growing up on the internet. But yeah, I mean, up until then, you know, good college, good grades, get the, you know, get get the job that everyone wants. And then it's, you know, sleeping on a couch, <laughs> working on something that no one has ever heard of. So yeah, it was definitely it was definitely a shift. You probably had, compared to the typical kind of ramen noodle eating founder, you probably had a little bit of a financial safety net from having worked for two years. Yeah, sort of. Not, I mean, look, I, I wasn't, I wasn't in a position where I had, I had like a couple months of rent cash, maybe a year, probably, let's call it. But um, that's about it. It wasn't that much. And so how, how does this turn into, into Coinbase? You know, I think the, the critical part was getting out of the investment banking slash management consulting track of life, at least for me. I don't mean to say those things are, are not good because I think they do a lot of good work and that's really satisfying for a lot of people. Um, but for me, it was getting off of sort of the typical treadmill and allowing myself to take a bit more risk. And ultimately, what the move out here did for me is it allowed me to, to really look around me at some of the opportunities that were a little more off the beaten path, but things that I was more intrinsically interested in. So after about two months out here, I found myself starting to focus on Bitcoin more and more in my free time. Uh, I would you know, email occasionally the, the guy I live with in New York and talk about it. And this is when Bitcoin still... Uh, it, it was a couple of kind of sketchy forums on the internet at best. So it was hard to find people to practically talk to about it. Long story short, I saw uh, Brian, who would later become uh, my co-founder, 
post on Reddit, like literally r slash Bitcoin, a prototype of what he was working on for Coinbase. And I saw a lot of potential in it. So I emailed him and, um, and we met up and started talking. Wow. So a co-founders meeting on a Reddit forum. Yeah, I think that will become increasingly common in the world, by the way. In, in the Bitcoin world or just the world world? Well, probably the blockchain world because it, by nature, tends to be a globally distributed world. But I think in that the same will be true for the world broadly as well, just slower. Well, I, I think we could spend tons of time talking about what you built up at Coinbase. But what I'm really excited you talk about is what, five years later, you recently left? Yeah, that's right. So I've, I've, been, I've been out of Coinbase for about three months now. I'm still on the board and left after about four and a half years. And to our listeners who don't know about Coinbase, it's the, the one time I bought four Bitcoins at about 400 bucks was through Coinbase. I actually don't know my Coinbase username or password, so I should probably figure that out at some point. But, um, but Coinbase obviously is probably one of the most established names in the Bitcoin industry and still very much on the up and up in terms of the, the things that it can do. Why'd you decide to leave? Uh, the first is that for the first time ever in the blockchain universe... I thought that there was a clear path towards actually being able to build true decentralized applications for the first time. So for those who, who, who aren't particularly familiar with, with this universe, Bitcoin kind of got really hot in early 2013. And I think we all were sitting there in late 2013, 2014, thinking, oh, man, there are going to be all these applications that are built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain. And the reality is that never transpired. So it caused us to really think hard about why that was. And it, it just turns out that the, the scripting language in Bitcoin, or in other words, the programming language that's built into it, is very challenging to actually build applications with. So with things like Ethereum now, I think that's becoming a lot more possible. And the, the upshot of all this is you can actually build cool blockchain-based apps for the first time. So I, I basically, I think there's a lot of opportunity to build not just what we built at Coinbase, which is this easy to use on-ramp for everyone into the ecosystem, but really powerful decentralized applications, which are unlike anything the world has, has yet seen. So I think, number one, there's a lot of opportunity to build other really valuable things for humanity in the space. The second is um, I was not the CEO at Coinbase. And there were parts of that that I, I found challenging for myself because I felt like I was not as fully contributing as, as I could, nor was at a certain point, was I learning or growing as fast as I could. And I, I say this from admittedly a very privileged point of view in the sense that I had incredible freedom there. And in, in the scheme of, of how things worked, I think Brian was extremely supportive of me. And for that, I'm forever grateful. But there, there is just something I think about um, uh, have, having the, the weight fall on your shoulders at the end of the day and truly molding something when you are the final decision maker on something, for example, that, that is different. So that, that's something that I think I will want to experience. What was your title? Uh, so I was, I was the co-founder and president of the company. Brian was the CEO of the company. The last reason in brief is the company was doing really well. You can probably make some guesses as to what, 
as to how the company is doing based on how the the overall space is doing. But I mean, the, the company is, is is doing quite well at least at, at this moment. And I felt like it was at a place where it was it, the the company would be fine if I did that. Got it. And how long had you been kind of mentally? How long had that been in the works? I think I subconsciously realized it probably about two years before it happened. Mm-hmm. And it took me probably a solid year and a half to realize that I wasn't getting certain things just based on the dynamics there that I wanted to uh, just for my own kind of personal fulfillment and growth. Whenever you're in something like that, that is doing quite well, and theoretically your identity is is quite tied to, you know, it's it's harder to come to realizations such as maybe the best thing for everyone is actually if if I step aside, both for my own interests and to also let Brian achieve his full potential because I'm probably getting in his way. So it took a while for me to come around to that, but it's it's a it's a lesson in life. I'm I'm glad I've learned now. Did you have any confidants or people that could help you navigate those feelings? Yeah, a little bit. I would say executive coaches are really helpful. I was um, <laughs> I, I sort of viewed executive coaching as sort of this armchair therapy thing for weak people. Uh, when when we started to do it in 2013. And I, I have a totally opposite view of it now. I think it, I think it's extremely helpful, um, and those are often the best people to talk through these sorts of things with. And then, um, you know, I, we're we're lucky enough to have one or two people on on the board who have seen this movie many times before and are willing to be you know pretty open and honest about uh, talking through these things with you. So, in that sense, I think we created some of our own luck in the sense that we you know we selected people around the company that that we really like and respect. And that one kind of came around to be helpful for us later on. I didn't realize that about the executive coaching. Another similarity that we share, and and I too had the exact same thinking. I was like, oh, like that that's for that's for the weak. That's for people who can't cut it. Um, it's a rehabilitation type program. And the, the thing that actually shifted for me and a big part of my personal shift has been because of, I mean, I call it life coaching. This, it's so hard to separate, in my opinion, especially at kind of the CEO and president level because of how your identity is entrenched. But I then saw all these entrepreneurs around me who I really respected, who all had executive coaches. And so, so then, I, then I approached executive coaching from like a performance angle, which it's just funny how kind of a type A hyperachiever's mind works. It's like, oh, like that person has a new tool. Like <laughs> I want to use it. I want to I try it. And yeah, I mean, I think executive coaching is some something is it's changed me i think it's it's one of these things i have a personal view people will have executive coaches the same way or let's just call them coaches we'll have coaches the same way they have personal trainers the same way that they have nutritionists whatever whatever your disposable spend is towards kind of having a a, a dedicated person uh, who who supports you because um because I think it, it is uh, that yeah. important. What are some things you learned about yourself from the coaches or coach? God, so many things. I think what you said is spot on in that so inherently when you are running a company, especially one where you're starting to manage more and more people. So we went from, you know, two to 130 while I was there. 
there are there are many things where if you don't learn, you will die. And if you don't learn quickly, you will die. I think the hardest one for most um, entrepreneurs who haven't done that before, and I was in this category, is learning how to get the most out of your employees and create the best environment for them. So the, the temptation is, since you've been there the longest and you've been thinking about the problem most, just to basically micromanage and to do everything yourself. And once you start to get to 20, 30 employees or so, that really becomes a strategy that clearly will not work and you will drive your best employees away if you continue doing that. So that, that transition is very hard. And I guess I just say that as one example of a whole series of ones where I think through managing others and trying to help them be the best they can be, you end up uh, having to mature very quickly yourself and learning a, a lot about yourself in the process. Because if, if you're going to try to understand others, empathize with them and help them be the best they can be, you have to know yourself pretty well first before you can possibly help others in that way. So, you know, executive coaching ostensibly in some ways is getting better at that process. But what you said is spot on in that it ends up really being this blurring of what you would think about as professional coaching, but really personal development and, and intense self-examination that feels more like personal life stuff, frankly. And, and being able to talk about that in the context of real challenges that you're facing as you're growing the company provides a really great, a really great way to, to learn quickly. And, you know, I think the best way you learn is by having an actual problem and having to actually go and solve it. So that, I guess that's how I would describe the experience. Mm-hmm. There's this quote by one of my, I call him teacher, someone who I respect, a philosopher named Parker Palmer. Uh, he's, he's a Quaker uh, philosopher, and, but he talks a lot about leadership and, and knowing the self. And so the, the quote goes, he takes a, a Socrates quote, he says, the, the unexamined self is not worth living. And then he adds his own version to it. But if you do choose to live an unexamined life, please do not manage other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty accurate, I think. Um, that That's cool. And so do you still work with a coach uh, after? Was it kind of a, a one and done type thing? Or, or is it something that you incorporated more broadly? So I don't work with a coach at the moment. It's quite possible that I should be. Over the course of the years at Coinbase, I worked with three different coaches. I would I would choose a new one roughly each year, um, and the reason for that being, I think you just get different you get different things from different people, and you also do I think settle into a bit of a groove sometimes with a particular coach where it's good to have a reality check of having to <laughs> having to talk through things with someone new. But I I, I don't currently, and that's maybe I should. Yeah. I'm also in limbo right now because my coach actually became a very good friend of mine mm-hmm. in the process. And it's just not now she's morphed a bit into kind of a cheerleader of mine, which is great. You want friends to support you and, and get you pumped up. But I think I need that kind of tough, tough love that it's just hard to get from a, from a friend. When, with my coaching experience, I think a lot about it really uh, exposed a lot of my own personal fears, 
how much does fear, or maybe let, let me ask this differently. I, I spoke at a, a big Wall Street firm yesterday and we were talking about leadership and one of the younger people in the audience, they said, if you were going to give advice to leaders at this firm as to how to make a better work environment, what would it be? Like super broad, uh, open-ended question. And, and what I said was, I would encourage all the leaders to look at the, the role that fear, the, the role and influence of fear within the organization. And specifically, are you leading in a kind of command and control mindset from that that arise uh, that results from from fear did did where what where what role did fear play in kind of your coaching journey um i if you look at it abstractly i would say a, a large one i think people often will project their own insecurities onto others and ironically when i think when and this is this was true for me when you really think about it, you are most likely to criticize other people, not necessarily for what they're objectively doing, but for what you see in them that you also see in yourself that you don't like in yourself, even if that's not the most important thing happening at the time. So one thing I, I learned with some help from an executive coach and just through some, some self-critical examination was getting to the root of what was really motivating me at the at, at the most core level to do what I was doing on a daily basis. I think that's really important because all of the insecurities you have as a leader and all of the pressures that you put on yourself and the way in which you view your own self-worth inevitably affect all of your actions and if you're sitting at the top of the org pyramid, will spread like wildfire, uh, whether consciously or not, to everyone else that you manage or that someone you manage, their, their direct reports, et cetera. Hmm. So, so in, that, in that sense, the idea, you know, sometimes you hear people say the organization really is a manifestation oftentimes of, of the personality of the leaders. I believe that is very true, and I experienced it firsthand. Personally, for me, um, it, le- it led me to really do a, a painful examination of what was motivating me at, at my core. And, you know, about two years into the business, I realized that the, the consistent theme for me, and this was true kind of throughout a lot of my life, was I wanted to create objective achievements that I could point to and no one else could deny. And those objective achievements would prove undeniably to anyone my, my worth in the world um, and, would, and would basically be a backstop for, as a result for my own sense of self-worth. Wow. Thank you for sharing. I, I literally have goosebumps hearing you say that because it's, it's not something that you needed to volunteer up um it's very personal uh but most importantly it's like i'm hearing you talk and i was like oh my god this <laughs> i i i feel i've felt that i feel that 
this this sense the this sense this question of self worth and and an identity through I've never I never thought about it through objective achievement like the, that qualifier really makes it crystal clear and uh, I, I remember when when I left BlackRock I I would tell myself that I wanted to be able to build and sell a company and I actually I live like pretty frugally so the like the marginal utility of a of a dollar is relatively low i mean now that i've been an entrepreneur it's, it's gotten back up a bit but but i didn't really care about the the money but i wanted to i wanted to be known as someone that could do something that was very difficult so i guess that was that objective metric it, and it's difficult and if and, and for some stupid reason the number that I had in my head was fifty million dollars. I want to build and sell a company for fifty million. And, and I'll tell you, Fred, the reason why it was fifty million is so ridiculous. First of all, as someone who's, I mean, Coinbase probably raised twenty, forty million, so somewhere there. So uh, it it actually means nothing in isolation. That's the first thing. But beyond, but but the the more ridiculous part of it was that if I had said like two hundred million or a billion, I would have thought myself to be like arrogant. And so by like ratcheting the number down, it was like, it was it, it exactly, it was that objective achievement. It was, it's hard enough that people think it's hard, but people don't think that I'm a greedy bastard. <laughs> hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I thought you were going to say something around someone in your social circle sold one for 30 or something. Oh Yeah. Thus, it was a it was a kind of a relative a relativistic happiness measure of some kind. Yeah, but I, I actually, for me, I cared less. It was less about the the comp the competitive aspect, um, and I'm not implying that it was for you as well. But it was really around the self worth. So it, it almost like I it, I didn't care that a friend had sold his company for $500 million. Um, I really wanted to, and maybe implicit in my desire was that, was that comparison, but it was really more from, it wasn't about beating someone else. It was about making myself be known to others. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, it, it, it absolutely does. I mean, this, yeah, I mean, it, it makes me think about, how how truly relative happiness in humans tends to be in the sense that there are probably people that were quite happy 300 years ago, yet they have none of the modern technologies and comforts that we have today. And, and if you ask yourself why, oftentimes it was probably the people who felt like, you know, com well, compared to other people who are like plowing the fields manually, I at least get to sit inside and, you know, have a nice whatever, whatever. So I, I think I guess it just it, it goes it goes to show I think how humans tend to constantly judge themselves relative to the environments that they're in and sometimes the unnecessary um, uh, pain that may cause. I think it has decreased a bit over time, but yeah, I, I mean I, I think it's one of these one of these things that I will have to to consciously work on for quite a while to get rid of um, one, because I think it's baked into us as, as humans, right? The idea of mimetic, mimetic behavior. 
of, of, of seeing other people with things and wanting them yourself, oftentimes for basic uh, survival reasons that have been baked into us over thousands of years. Um, it's really powerful. And then, I mean, you layer on top of that, the societal constructs that reinforce it. You know, we live in a capitalistic society where, you know, your, your uh, hierarchy often in, in a common social view and in terms of what you can do in the world is determined by how many dollars you have or what, you know, what, what others, what others think of you in that way. So a long way of saying yes, because I think it, given our human nature and our environment, it's very hard to escape it. And the best thing that we can do is be aware of it. And when we're making decisions, try, try to remember that and try to remember what we think will bring us long-term happiness. Do you think though that what we want in our environment, uh, well, what we want is there are in a, there are things that we want that we cannot achieve unless we have a certain amount of of money or status. Do you believe that in your like deep inside? So, uh, at some objective level, yes. Like you need resources in order to accomplish certain goals. It depends what the goals are. Like if you want to go build a huge building, you need to convince a bunch of people to give you money to do it. Uh, for example, that doesn't mean that all goals are like that necessarily though. And that doesn't mean that you have to start with all those resources, but yeah, I mean, in some objective sense, there are limited resources available on the earth that we as humans are able to use. And I think the great thing about technology is it's constantly expanding that pie so that we can increasingly meet the basic human needs of increasingly everyone on the planet. But at any given point in time, there are limited resources. So that, that is a practical reality. But, but don't you think that for privileged part of the conversation and worlds that you and I live in closer to the top of Maslow's hierarchy, I agree with what you're saying for those who struggle to put, you know, food on the table or a roof over their heads. But once that's been eliminated or significantly reduced, do you think that that scarcity should still matter to say you and I? It depends what uh, you set as your own goals. Mm. So no, in, in many cases, like you, you could very well say that, you know, your goal in life is just to uh, make other people around you happy and your friends and your family. Uh, so in that sense, no, I mean, you could, you know, the, the extreme route of this is, you know, you could become like a Buddhist monk or something like that, where your desire is to become, you know, uh, awake and enlightened by just being very conscious of all the, the desire seeking behavior that you have. And for that, you need next to nothing. You just need to be able to feed yourself occasionally. If your goal is to, you know, is, is to, is to build a huge company or to, um, you know, build rocket ships or something like that, then at some practical level, yes, you need a lot of resources to accomplish that. So I think it all, it all just depends on what your goals are. Mm -hmm. I want to have this conversation about goals because you've mentioned it a few times and and I'm like used to be so goal oriented. But I just say my evolving thinking on goals is I try to stop having goals. And 
and really, you know, there, there's that whole like systems versus goals and kind of to like productivity framework, but really uh, focus on the process systems act, whatever you want to call it, as my guidepost with a belief that if I do those things, then the goal will be emergent or will emerge from me doing the thing that brings me joy. So people even ask me now, like, well, do you have, you know, a newsletter, you write, you do this, well, like, what's your goal with this? And, and hand in my heart, um, my goal is I want to do things that really make me happy. Like, interviewing you on this podcast makes me very happy. Like I, I would do this, like I'm not making, <laughs> neither of us are making any money off of this. I'm doing it because it's fun and I'm enjoying the conversation and I'm excited to put this conversation into the world. I think that by approaching it that way, there's a much greater chance that whatever emerges will be great. And so that's just, that's just like my personal thinking on goals um, I don't know if that, if that, if any of that resonates with you. I think, I think it does. And I think that you're right that a lot, sometimes more specific goals will be emergent behaviors. I would say that at some basic level, as you kind of just identified, you have a goal and it's to, mm. to, to be happy in your own life. And it sounds like to a certain extent to, to, to spread that to other people as much as you can. Exactly how that happens. Maybe that's a little more, more open to different to different paths. True, true. How how are you spending your time now? I know you just got back from a silent retreat, um, but what does a typical day look like? Kind of all over the map. Uh, I guess the the most common things that I find myself doing are just trying to learn more about the world around me. So that you know that that could be anything from reading physics or, or philosophy to for me, I, I find that I learn a lot about the world through the lens of looking at blockchains. And so I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs in that space. And I, I currently am helping two or, two or three groups of them because I think they're building important things. And I'm still on the board of Coinbase as well. So I went to the board meeting for that earlier this week. And, you know, one of the nice things about not having a set of a schedule is, uh, like you said, it does give the opportunity to do things that are a little more out of the box. So I, you know, I went to I went to India around to maybe some of the the less uh, well off areas. My girlfriend is on the board of a nonprofit that basically distributes eyeglasses there. So I got to go around to hospitals and some local villages and stuff like that. And uh, I went to Argentina for a little bit. And then, like like you said, I did this nine day silent meditation retreat, which I wouldn't say is like a pleasant experience, but was was a very valuable one. I guess you could sum it all up as trying to learn more about the world around me and trying to be a bit more introspective about trying to learn more about myself so that if and when I start to run hard at another thing I think is really worth willing to into existence in the world in the way we did with Coinbase, I have a really strong footing in doing that. I've never been on a, a silent retreat. I, I do meditate regularly. How does being so isolated and, and removed. And, and I think uh, I think people always ask me about silent retreats, like you can write and read. It's like, no, it's like you're not even supposed to look people in the eye, right? Yeah. I'm just curious, like what does that experience feel like? The I would say the main uh, angle of it is 
removing all sensory stimuli that you are in this constant stream of in your everyday life. And by removing that stream of constant stimuli, whether it's, you know, get up, got to rush to work, you're thinking about your day, you eat, you get some like these short positive feelings from like chewing your food because it's because it's delicious. You know, you you walk into a meeting, someone contests what you say, you have a short bout of anger from it. Like we, we I think we go through life, even even just standing stationary in a room and looking around you. All the all the sensory input that's coming through your eyes and what you're smelling and and your ears and hearing the sounds around you if you're in especially if you're in a city or something it's a lot of information like when you think about a computer rendering uh, what are becoming increasingly photorealistic video games you you know the most powerful computer today can't handle all of that right and our brain is just constantly doing these things so the way I would describe it is by sitting for long periods of time or by very slowly walking and literally just looking down at the ground in front of you, you take yourself out of this constant stream of stimuli that we are just wading through every day. And by doing that, it really helps you examine what's going on in your brain and specifically why are you doing what you're doing? Why are you gr- potentially gravitating towards the thing, certain behaviors in your life? And why are you pushing away and avoiding others? Wow. Th- was this your first one? Uh, I had done a three day one okay. before, but not, you know, it, it was, it wasn't fully silent. So nine, nine days fully silent is I think a different animal. I, I think about Yuval Harari that does like 40 day Every, yeah. each year can you tell now if it's something that you would kind of incorporate with some some regularity yeah i think it would be healthy to do it about once a year mm-hmm. for me one thing that that i wanted to ask you about well two things fascinated me about bitcoin one is you're are you 30 yet i'm 29 i think i did the math you've probably been in bitcoin for like 90 percent of bitcoin's existence <laughs> so, so as a 29 year old you're like a grizzled veteran of this community but i really and i don't know a ton about it but what what really fascinates me about bitcoin is kind of the and, and crypto i guess more generally is that it really provides a lens into the future and a lens that like in your Goldman Sachs days or in, in my BlackRock days, but even to like some of the really young and smart and hungry folks that I talk to, they just like, they're like, nah, it's some like strange, quirky thing that's not going to matter. So I guess if, if you're, there are a, a lot of kind of like early 20s kind of trying to figure out life, career and things like that. Um, how do, how would you describe the the kind of, long-term importance of crypto and how, how should people be thinking about it in terms of like career? So, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I am fully down my <laughs> own rabbit hole probably on this one. So this is going to sound like an extreme view, but I believe that blockchains ultimately will be the infrastructure that runs all of society in an increasingly digital world. So that might start by looking like things that are a little weird or crazy like this what you know what's this digital money thing like bitcoin or now we're getting to a stage with uh, ethereum and another system called filecoin where you could think about them as 
the massively global distributed computer in the case of Ethereum or the massively global distributed database in the case of Filecoin. Um, like an AWS? Where, yeah, except except there's no yeah. Amazon that controls it. Thus, it's, it's a neutral thing that like the basic protocols of the internet today, like you know TCP IP and SMTP for email and HTML to display web pages, make their way into everything because they are they really are their own living, breathing kind of protocols and organisms where no one owns it, so everyone is comfortable using it as a shared standard. And not only that, but they have these native tokens to them, like a Bitcoin or an Ether where there actually are these really powerful economic incentives for everyone who's a mutual owner of the things to make them work, to have, to kind of spread the virus, if you will, um, to have it integrated into everything um, and to have the value of those tokens go up. Um, so that, then that really is the new element that was introduced here that I, I think make, in my mind, makes this inevitability. Um, so that's, I guess that's how I would describe it. And then the weird... If you, if you want to go sort of all the way out on on the the end game of this spectrum, yes, on why I also view this as inevitability. So, you know, I think um, I think we are increasingly living in digital worlds. If you look at males eighteen to thirty five, the employment rate you know is, is is going is going down at least for those without a college education, and seventy five percent of that excess time is spent playing video games. And I, you know, I played World of Warcraft a ton when I was in, in high school, so I know how this is. So in, in any case, you know, we are going to be able to do things in virtual worlds that we could never do in the physical world, and they will be enticing. And if you believe in, you know, for example, Elon Musk's new uh, startup Neuralink, where there's a direct interface between a computer and your brain, we, whether it's through VR or AR or through a brain-computer interface like that, we are going to get to a point in our lifetimes, I think, where we are getting direct stimulation to our brain from computers, and those computers will be internet-connected. So in, in that scenario, you have to ask yourself the question of, do I want a private company in control of what is directly going into my brain? In other words, would I be comfortable having Facebook directly pipe things into my brain? And I think most people would feel uncomfortable with that, obviously. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the only solution uh, that I can think of is instead of having Facebook kind of throw you into this weird, isolated reality they control, we all share a mutual reality based on uh, a cryptographically secure blockchain where we can all trust and verify that we are a part of a, of a shared reality in, in a way that we all kind of trust by seeing each other uh, in the physical world today that we're sort of in this, in this, in this shared reality. Do you, do you think that, and, and this is like uh, unanswerable, but do you think that in, in our lifetimes uh, we see like a decentralized version of Facebook? Oh, absolutely. I think we see that in the next uh, 15 years wow. uh, with high probability. I, my, my theory on this is that all the major tech titans at the moment uh, have basically created these massive network effects-based businesses where they control a big proprietary database and are forevermore extracting rent on it. So Facebook, this is true. Uber, this is true. Google, this is true. Um, Amazon, et cetera. Um, 
And uh, my, my, my basic theory is that over the next 15 years, these major tech companies will start to get dismantled because the power of open protocols doing their same core functions, i.e. replace Uber with a protocol that just matches riders and drivers and remove the rent extractor from the middle um, and the central point of innovation, frankly, from the middle uh, will, will, will occur and create all these emergent behaviors in the same way that the open internet created all these emergent behaviors that just simply weren't possible when you only had one company in control of it. Wow. And so in that decentralized Facebook world, are the, the users themselves being compensated for say, sharing their data? Uh, yes. To the extent that others in the network find it valuable. Mm. Um, so the basic way to think about it is, yeah, any, anyone can kind of openly contribute to the network and then the network will probably have some view or some rules around what the network views as valuable for the purposes of that network versus not. But uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, much in the same way that, you know, if you contribute your compute power to the Bitcoin network, you get compensated. You might, you know, let's say it's a it's a mutually aggregated news news site or something. If you contribute a story that the community ends up finding very valuable, then you get compensated for the work of having contributed in the first place. Wow. We could talk about this for, for hours, but I want to yeah. ask, let's say you are, or, or like take my case, like a 30, 38-year-old or a 21-year-old who, who wants to be part of this, but is non-technical. What's the best way to get immersed in this world? So I guess first I want to put a, a caveat on this, which is that... Um, I think the best way for people to find where they can contribute the most is to like wander a little bit. So I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like the classic, take me as an example. Like if we, if, if someone had done a podcast in 2010 saying like, you know, what would be interesting to focus on? No one would have said Bitcoin and I happened to stumble across it early. And that's in some ways what has led me to what feels like some level of success, at least today. Well, and we'll see how it unfolds. But I guess like one, one general thought would be people shouldn't be afraid to look in nooks and crannies because those are the, 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 those are the places that have the real like kind of future potential in the same way that the thing that kind of mostly disrupted Microsoft was two guys in a garage. Um, in the, in the form of Google, but to specifically answer your question, I mean, frankly, the best way to do it is to like go buy just like a very, a, a very small or de minimis amount and learn through experience. I think what you'll find, and this is one of the reasons I'm, I'm convinced that this, this whole thing is an inevitability is that once you own some, you start one getting involved in the community and, and seeing all the other crazy stuff that's going on, but you, it makes you critically examine what, what even allowed you to get that thing in the first place. Why does it have value? Where might this go? Things like that. So I'd suggest just buying a very small amount. So one of the things when, when you were talking about the objective achievement and the pursuit thereof that, that really, for me, became crystal clear was when I read, I didn't even read the whole book, but it's called The Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. And in this book, it's funny, you actually use the example of accumulating resources to build a building. He says, the argument he makes that hit me like a ton of bricks was, men is so afraid of their mortality that they seek to live a heroic life. And they try to write the great American novel, build a building with their name on it. 
uh, create a family legacy. And that is the manifest, this desire to live a heroic journey is actually the kind of root of our human struggle. I don't know if, if that resonates with how you've thought about success and achievement. I think, I mean, I think that's, that's very, that's very true. I don't, I, I guess, I guess the way I would generally think about it is I think that as humans, and this is true of most organisms, um, I think all organisms, and we are just getting to an, a point of emergent intelligence where we can critically examine this through things like meditation. Um, most organisms are pleasure seeking and pain avoidant. So in, I guess the lens through which I would look at what you're saying is, as we tend to do things like accumulate more resources, we often tend to gain things like social status, or we tend to per- be able to purchase more things that we think will give us more happiness. And I think the <laughs> the, the thing um, that... Uh, you know, I think people can spend their whole lives doing these things, right? In fact, there are some people who probably spend their whole lives and don't ultimately like get rich in the monetary sense of the word, or like don't build a massive community, or get you know they run for public office and they don't win or whatever. So these things can be really all-consuming. I think as a society, we often don't think about the extent to which we are just trying to continue to fuel a fire of seeking pleasure and avoiding pain um, because that is just very much the default mindset that has driven, you know, over thousands and millions of years, organisms to survive in the world. Like if you're going to program a very basic organism, you're going to give it a hit of pleasure when it eats or has sex to reproduce. Cause that's the only way it will ever survive and, and, uh, and go forward in the world and thus exist in the universe today. And conversely, you know, if it if it gets hit, which threatens its existence and procreation, then you're going to give it pain. The problem with this, though, is it leads you to to be on, you know, what what many would refer to as the hedonic treadmill. And you can be on that thing your entire life unless you really step back and critically examine why am I doing the things that I'm doing? Um, and realize that depending on what those things are, they may actually not make you any happier despite you working harder and harder and harder and longer and longer and longer into your life to get them. I'm curious, I'm curious if, if that's something that you've experienced at all too, maybe in, in your, in your thinking. Yeah, I, I think I, um, I never thought about it as the, the pleasure, pain avoidant pleasure seeking, but the first thing that I thought about, which is kind of this pursuit of happiness like maybe happiness being a product a byproduct of of pleasure and i've actually also so jerry colonna i don't know if you know him from from um the reboot podcast Uh, and community and all that yeah i know his co-founder actually so colin was my first executive coach who was his co-founder at reboot got it got it so so i've been heavily influenced by Jerry, even though I haven't been coached by him. And he has this quote where he says, I don't pursue happiness, I pursue equanimity. Uh, and I find that the byproduct of equanimity is happiness. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it goes a little bit back to that like goals versus the moment 
part of the conversation that that we had. And I guess that there is, I mean, there's a lot in there. There's like the Buddha's concepts of like the present moment and and some of the meditation work that that you've you've done. But I I've thought I, I've been thinking more about not not looking for that kind of hit of pleasure and really just like being centered and calm. And so I guess that kind of like, I don't know, it kind of sits right in the center of the kind of duality that you laid out. But it is a, it, I mean, maybe it's just a mental reframing, but making, I guess, the end goal being like kind of like this sense of like peace versus like, yeah, I'm at like a rock concert or I'm like having sex or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. um, is actually, um, actually helps me like stay away from both sides of the pole, the, the, the poles, which then kind of leads to that, uh, that emergent feeling. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's entirely right. I found it really interesting. I think, and I think we're actually saying this, the same thing. I find it really interesting to read some of the AI research that's going on recently because I think it helps remove this from like, uh, you know, remove it sufficiently from ourselves such that we can objectively examine it. So a lot of AI algorithms are basically exactly this, where there's a, you know, let's say you're training the AI to play a video game and there's a score in the video game and the goal is to maximize the score. What you quickly find is that really an AI is just making a whole series of decisions over time. And if you if you take any one of those decisions, you know, there's probably, let's say there are three options. There's one that makes the score go up. There's one that makes the score roughly stay the same. There's one that makes the score go down. The most naive algorithm is to choose the one that makes the score go up in that step because that's mm-hmm. the ultimate goal. Mm-hmm. But what you also very quickly discover is that if you just choose that option all the time, you very quickly limit the tree of possibilities and uh, you actually can trap yourself in a local maximum very, very easily. So to loop this back to, to the earlier part of the conversation where I mentioned, you know, in some ways I kind of, uh, I don't mean to make this sound like a heroic experience or anything, but when I moved out of New York and left, you know, a bunch of friends and good job and, future economic success to come out here and, you know, basically had nothing to me that was taking the, you know, taking the branch of that tree mm-hmm. where the score actually went down. And, but ultimately what I, for at least I believe this to be true so far, what it let me do is unlock a whole new part of the tree that ultimately would get me to a higher level of fulfillment in my life. That if you're just constantly seeking pleasure, you never could have accessed. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Fred, I really want to thank you for for being on the podcast. I can't wait to share this conversation um, with our community. So thanks so much, my man. Cool. Yeah, good to chat. Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. If you like the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. And to stay up to date with all the happenings in the community, please subscribe to our weekly email newsletter at radreads.co. This podcast is supported by the amazing members of the community and entirely via donation. If you're interested in contributing, any amount goes a long way. And you can find our contribution page at patreon.com slash radreads. Thank you. Thank you.